This is a podcast from Minute Media. And welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, the epic conclusion, part three, E.T. versus The Thing versus Blade Runner. Surely fans, Jason and I have spent the day making origami, playing E.T. on the Atari, and drinking J&B whiskey. <laughs> that will get us prepared for this epic conclusion. And he won E.T. Cheating That's... <laughs> That is not true. The FBI guy got me every time. (laughs) Okay, before we get rolling on this awesome episode, part three capper of our epic three-part series on these awesome movies, I got to give a shout out to the 30-something movie podcast guys. They are killing it over there. They're doing such a good job. This week, they came out with their Encino Man episode, which is one of my favorites. And it also stars, as you noted in one of our last episodes, uh, Mr. Richard Masser, who plays Clark in thing that's right it does yeah and it also involves whizzing the juice <laughs> wheezing the juice there'd be no whizzing of the juice <laughs> <laughs> the cheese is old and moldy <laughs> all right well let's dive in man you i'm ready brain... to pass the final here you're you're ready to brain dump okay <laughs> well we are going to talk about some kind of big amazing ideas in the movie before we jump into that let's talk about the fact that these are three special effects amazeball movies yeah Right? I mean, The Thing, of course, because it's a horror movie, and so you're going to have the extra special effects. But the things that are going on with the scenery and the Blade Runner and the animatronics that are going on with E.T., these are things worth noting. Okay. As a matter of fact, they're not only worth noting, they're things that we could probably spend an entire episode on for each movie. So I'm sorry, listeners. We are not going to go as deep and in-depth as we normally would on these things, but we got to at least touch base on these. Yeah, okay? let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So let's start with the thing again, as we it seems to lead out every time. We've got Rob Botin, who we've mentioned before. Now, he, just before this, had done... The Fog. Yes. And he had also done The Howling. Oh, The Howling. That's right. Yeah. 1981. Be sure and check out our The Howling versus American Werewolf in London episodes. Those were great episodes. That was the movie that he turned D. Wallace into an Ewok. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Right. And so he did some incredible incredible stuff with this. He had met John Carpenter when he was like 21 and wanted to work with him. Ended up getting a part in The Fog. Yes. And so we're going to talk about those in just a second. But I also got to mention a couple other guys. Number one, you got Albert Whitlock. He was the matte artist. So those scenes where you're seeing the spaceship in the snow, those are painted. No CGI back in 1982. Mind-blowing. They would have the guys go stand on like, you know, sheets on the ground out in the grass, film them, (laughs) and then Albert Whitlock would go in and paint over them. Now, Albert Whitlock is a guy who was the guy to go to starting with Alfred Hitchcock. Like oh, Alfred wow. Hitchcock okay. used him for virtually all of his movies. But let me throw out some others that he was involved in, okay? He was involved with Dune, which yeah. would come up just a bit later as Ridley Scott was almost the director. He almost right? directed Dune. He did Neverending Story 2. Okay. He did Gremlins 2. He did Coming to America, which is, you know, one that we've covered 
transferred before, but you yes. got those Africa scenes. That's Albert Whitlock who painted those. Wow. And he did the best little whorehouse in Texas. <laughs> the movie that had the sign out front that welcomed Kurt Russell and John Carpenter to the movie studio when they were shooting the thing. Yes. And if I can tie in just one more episode of ours, he also did Spaceballs. Wow. Yeah. So he's an icon. Rob Bottin's an icon. And then, of course, Rob Bottin had to have some animatronics involved with his special effects. And who did they have? Stan Winston. That's right. They did. I did see that. So Stan Winston, we talked about him on our Jurassic Park episode. He is another icon in the field involved with Star Wars and a million other animatronics style movies of the 80s. The stuff that is done on the monster special effects in the thing, Mm -hmm. super fascinating, right? So there is a scene where the chest cavity opens up and this little flower-like thing comes out. Well, that flower is made up of dog tongues. Yeah, if you'll remember it because it looks like the Little Shop of Horrors Venus Life. It really does. Feed me, Seymour. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you're a Stranger Things fan, it kind of looks like the dog demon things on Stranger Things. Right. John Carpenter had sent Rob Bottin down. They had a comic book artist there at the studio. They both worked together designing these things just in kind of picture format to start with. And then Rob Bottin would go in and create these characters. Stan Winston came in and he's like, okay, well, you know, it's going to be hard to do animatronics on this. But if you've got no real definition on the way it's formed, if you can just mold around my arm, I can just work it like a puppet. Yeah. And so a lot of the dog mouth action that you see, I mean, that's literally a guy's arm in a puppet making that happen. You know, one of the effects that's really stunning to me, and I don't, I still don't really understand how they did it, but when the thing breaks open and all that like spaghetti-like stuff is start whipping around, yeah, that creeped me out to no end, man. That stuff is disgusting. So... In that scene, there's there are a couple of things going on. Number one, he was making stuff up as he went. And so at <laughs> one point, when they're filming that scene, they've got all these chemicals in there that have been flying around and shooting out and doing all this other stuff. And suddenly John Carpenter's like, wait, 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 wait. In this part of the scene, he's just shot a flamethrower right before this and the thing's on fire. So I can't just shoot this with no fire. It's not going to be consistent. And so they're like, okay. And I mean, they've got guys under the table doing all these mechanics and stuff like that that so they're like okay well let's set it on fire well those chemicals they had been using had just been filling the room with flammable gas and all of a sudden it just goes like the whole room engulfs in flames and these things that rob boutine had spent weeks and he slept at the studio right and i mean he was exhausted he had spent months he had to be hospitalized at the end of this yeah i mean it was and so he's this monumental effort and then all of a sudden he just sees it burned to a crisp fortunately it wasn't completely destroyed and he could patch it back up but yeah so the part where the guy's arms get bitten off you know they've got that animatronic thing that opens up his chest yes and clamps down on it well the way that they did that is they had a guy who was an amputee come in Uh and they made him fake arms out of jello and other stuff like that so that whenever the chest clamps shut he can pull his arms out of the fake arms right Uh Uh and so since you know the actor who's playing this part isn't an amputee they're like well what do we do there you're going to see his face they made a fake face they made like a wax face and put it on the amputee's face so that when you see him like thrashing around with no arms it's the guy is wearing a mask really yeah that's cool yeah hey i did see something that was really funny to me they used a ton of ky jelly (laughs) 
right? <laughs> Who doesn't? They used a ton of KY jelly and it makes everything look super slimy and slick and all that stuff. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys I heard marveling was, he's like, we bought this in 55-gallon drums. He goes, who needs 55-gallon drums of KY jelly? Oh, there you go. It's crazy. That's funny. Um, okay, let's jump over to Blade Runner. So, in Blade Runner, there's not as many special effects, per se. You don't have a lot of gore going on. You don't have a lot of weird stuff. What you have is some of the most amazing scenery I've ever seen in any movie in my life. We talked about how Ridley Scott wanted to use the Bradbury, and they're like, no, everybody uses the Bradbury. He's like, not the way I'm going to do it. Right. Well, the entire thing is like that. And it all comes from this artist named Sid Mead. And, dude, I looked at this guy's life holy smokes i mean he's just he is a god among men i mean he just he worked for car design companies he worked for building design companies he was doing movie after movie he did tron at the same time as he was doing wow. this i mean yeah. he's designing I mean, like he's drawing these cityscapes he's doing all of that stuff and his artwork is just amazing this is what he used for inspiration hong kong on a very bad day and nighthawks by edward hopper those were his kind of inspirational okay. points and and I think that's probably one of the most amazing features about Blade Runner is the way that they put you in this future world and you buy in. I mean, you when I'm watching it, I'm not thinking to myself, oh, well, there, that's fake. That wouldn't really. Right. It all is stuff that you're just like, oh, I can completely see this as our dystopian future. Absolutely. One of the possible futures that they proposed in 1982 was this idea that Los Angeles and San Francisco would grow together as one giant urban area uh-huh. and that you would have this sort of uh, street language that include like Japanese and English. There's actually some Chinese lettering. This is how detailed they got. Yeah. I don't speak Chinese, but apparently it says Asians good, Americans bad or something oh, like that. Wow, on okay. one of the things. They steered away from that one big urban area, but Demolition Man picked that idea up and ran with it a little bit. Yeah. And, and they did a great job of taking Sid Mead's paintings and bringing them to life. And the guys that did that, that was Douglas Trumbull that I had talked about in our last episode, who was kind of the man as far as those set designs go. And then we have E.T. Okay, uh, swear it one more time. I have absolute, have absolute power. Yes. The biggest effect on E.T. is E.T. Right. So you've got the creature of E.T. He was created by Carlo Rambaldi, okay? Carlo Rambaldi, also involved in Dune and the original NeverEnding Story. And he, before this movie, he did the alien head in Alien. Yeah. Uh, like the effects where it would, the mouth would come out. That was Carlo Rambaldi. And he also did the alien effects on Close Encounters. Okay. After this movie, he did a ton of movies, but one of them was the werewolf suit in Silver Bullet. Oh, nice. Did you see the 76 version of King Kong? I have. He did that one too. He did King Kong as well. Yeah. He's another icon in the field. We got icon after icon. The matte paintings for this movie were done through ILM, and it's Christopher Evans, who was like the chief of matte paintings for them. You get the spaceship animation and that sort of thing, but really, this isn't a movie that's super full of these special effects, except for for the E.T. And the E.T. creature was something, I was looking at the operators, I counted at least seven different operators on the E.T. And obviously they're doing it at different times, they had different suits that they used, but Carlo Rambaldi's design looks very similar to another thing that we talked about just a bit before that I wanted to get in a little bit more detail about. 
Okay, you ready for this? Yeah, sure. Okay, so here I am. I'm looking at the biggest special effects science fiction movies of 1982 and probably conceivably of all time. And there's a name that's missing. Okay. It's Rick freaking Baker. Where is Rick Baker? Yeah, I yeah. can't. I'm like, okay, well, he did Ghost Story before this and he did some other like Videodrome after this. What was he doing in 1980? Was he on vacation? I'm looking. I can't figure it out. Right? Why wouldn't you have Rick Baker? Right. Why wouldn't you have Rick Baker involved and in some capacity in one of these movies? Well, let me tell you why. Okay. So you talked about in our first part of this series, Night Skies. Yes. So Night Skies was this script that was written by John Sayles that ended up spawning Poltergeist, E.T., and Gremlins, the movie, right? That's right. Yeah, that's correct. And so the way it was originally written, instead of Gremlins being the creatures that were running around creating havoc, it was little aliens right. like E.T. Right. running around creating the havoc. And I think you listed off some names last time. Yeah, Squid and or Squirt and... Scar. Yeah. Something like that, yeah. right? Yep. Well, here's what happened. Okay. Spielberg thinks he's going to be making this movie called Night Skies. Right. And so he goes to the most logical guy, Rick Baker. Okay. Rick, I'm going to make this movie. I've got lots of aliens that I need, and you help me out. And so Rick Baker starts creating aliens, which they end up looking very similar to what we finally end up with with E.T., just a little rougher and tougher, but that same kind of style for okay. sure. Okay. Well, then the movie changes, and Spielberg's like, well, I'm not going to make one movie called Night Skies. I'm going to make three movies, none of which are Night Skies. Right. And so... Hey, Rick, thanks for your trouble, but I'm going to not do this. Right. Well, Rick had spent $750,000 of his own money, not to mention all of the hours that he put in to build these things. What? And he's like, what? You're just saying, no, we're just done, and that's just it? I mean... At the time, you could think, hey, this is Spielberg telling me he's going to do a movie. I can feel safe and secure in doing this. Right, right. So it really pissed him off. Yeah, of course. And he's like, I'm never going to work with that guy ever again. And if you look, they have never done a movie wow. together. Wow. So there it is. That's the answer to the question I couldn't figure out. The reason Rick Baker wasn't doing this is because he had been spurned by Spielberg in trying to do something that ultimately was a precursor I can't believe movie. you stiffed him on that, man. I know. I know. Gosh. Okay. Okay. You ready to talk deep questions? Let's talk about the big issues in these movies. Okay. Ready? Yes. Let's start with Blade Runner. Let's do it. So before we get to the biggest question, we have to ask ourselves, why are there multiple versions of this movie? That's a good question. Okay? Yeah. In fact, I think you watched... I watched the, the final cut. You watched the final cut. I watched the director's cut. Okay. There's some differences between those two movies, I right? I think the first time that I watched it, I didn't watch director's cut or final cut. I watched like the original version. Okay. So just for those of you who are listening, I mean, there's there's the work print prototype. There was the San Diego sneak preview. There's the U.S. theatrical release, which people saw in theaters. There was an international release. There was, of course, the TV version. Then we have the director's cut. So this is the interesting one. The original theatrical release in 1982, Harrison Ford did some narration. Yep. Because when they had screened it, test audiences didn't really understand what was happening. Skin jobs. That's what Bryant called replicants. And so the studio said, you got to clarify for these dumb people. you got to tell them what's going on. And Harrison Ford is like, no, this is stupid. I'm not going to dumb it down and tell these people. And basically, they had to make him. Yeah. And you can tell by his performance that he does not want to be there. He seems extremely disinterested. Now, Harrison Ford has said, I didn't mail it in. I gave it my best. <laughs> sure you did. Right, right, right. Sure you did, Harrison. Okay. Because you're really good at hiding how you feel. <laughs> 
He's grumpy. And then you had the happy ending at the end of the U.S. theatrical release, okay? Yeah, for those of you who haven't seen it, the happy ending is that uh, Deckard and Rachel are driving off into the sunset, right? They're going to go live together, and we find out that Rachel doesn't have the four-year limitation, so they could potentially have their happily ever after. Here's the interesting thing about the happy ending. Yeah. They're going off into this mountains and snow and lakes and, you know, beautiful. Those were the castaway shots from The Shining. No, I know what you're talking about. Okay. You've got the, the, the ominous music music playing as, as as things are flying over Jack Nicholson the and yeah 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 there's driving out to Colorado and that those shots were taken from leftover shots of the shine that's fantastic i did not that, you blew my mind right there where okay, to go cool. where to go so that's the original release. Well, Ridley Scott was dissatisfied with it. Harrison Ford was certainly dissatisfied with it. So mm-hmm. ultimately, it didn't help audiences. They still didn't understand it. They still didn't get it. And it didn't help it be a success. It right? wasn't. Yeah, it was a failure. Okay. So listen to this. In 1992, we get the director's cut. Yeah. Okay. And now listen to how this came about. In October of 1989, this guy named Michael Eric was looking for an old cut of the movie Gypsy. Okay. Now, he worked at the Todd A.O. Vaults, which is one of these places that store old movies and kind of preserve them and keep them or whatever. And so he stumbled upon this version of Blade Runner. Okay. Okay. Well, it turns out it was the work print version, which means it did not have the happy ending and it did not have the narration. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, this theater in L.A., the Cineplex Ordean Fairfax Theater, got wind of this discovery and said, Hey, Warner Brothers, is it okay if we show this version in our theaters, right? Yeah. Well, when they showed it, people were like, Oh, this is so much better. <laughs> right? Right. And then it, it sort of built up some momentum and people wanted to see this different cut of Blade Runner. Right. And it, it caused a surge in popularity. And so, Ridley Scott said, he didn't work and he didn't edit it himself, but he okayed it. Yeah, he... I think there was a. He was in the middle of some other movies at the time. Thelma and Louise, I think, if I'm remembering I right. I think that's right. Yeah. And there was somebody else who he trusted to make the cuts, and he said, "Here's what I would do," and that's how you get the title director's cut. Okay. So in the director's cut, you have the removal of Deckard's voiceovers. Right. You have the addition of the unicorn dream sequence, which is huge. It's huge. It's, it's so huge. big. I can't believe they took it out. <laughs> I know, right? It doesn't make any I mean it's just it's crazy. We'll talk about that more here in just a second. Yeah. And then they took off the happy ending. Well, in 2007, you have the final cut version, which is actually Ridley Scott sitting down, going through with a fine-tooth comb and making his own version of it. And let me just say George Lucas could learn something from Ridley Scott. Yes. Because you don't have any new, like, shiny spaceships coming in that are all CGI'd. And right. Sort of you have a genuine effort to make the original product look better, not different. Mm-hmm. It was so much better looking right. than the originals. By the way, yeah. I don't want to get into this too much, yeah. but in 2002, Steven Spielberg sat down and did a cut of E.T., a 20th anniversary cut. Mm. Whereas in the original theatrical cut, you had E.T.'s Heartlight when he's running from keys at the very beginning. Yeah. They're pulling him on a, on a rail. And so that Heartlight just goes evenly. And in 2002, Spielberg added a little bit of CGI just to make the, the Heartlight jump like it had movement. Oh, okay. And so it's subtle changes like that instead of Greedo getting shot, you know. <laughs> You know, subtle changes. Right. Lucas, subtle. Okay. All right. So that's the multiple versions. Let's talk about Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott in their battle. Okay. Okay. Now, Ridley Scott has said the the toughest actor he has ever worked with is Harrison Ford. 
Okay. All right? He's probably not alone. Harrison Ford was not speaking to Ridley Scott by the end of this movie. And Alan Ladd Jr. said even more than that, he wanted to beat the crap out of him. Like he was ready to go to fisticuffs with Ridley Scott. Now, here's the interesting thing about it. It has to do with the big question of whether or not Deckard is a replicant or not. That is the big question. That's the big question. Okay, let's talk about some iconic imagery in this thing to lead us down this path. Okay, okay? yes. Okay, so let's start with Tyrell's Pyramid. Okay. It is not an Egyptian pyramid. It is in a pyramid like the old Incas or Aztec type of pyramid, which is important because in their religion, the god or gods that existed created man not for loving, but for service, as in you are my workers, my slaves, which is exactly what Tyrell has created his replicants for. Yes. Okay. Yep. Number two. Okay. The snake. Yes. Now we get into the biblical imagery, right? Hell yeah. So you've, got the, you've got the snake tattoo on Zora, and then of course she owns the snake, but it's not a real snake. Well, this of course immediately brings up images of the garden and the serpent, but also the idea that the animals, I mean, are you kidding me? I couldn't afford something like that if it right. was a real snake, because it doesn't really detail it, but all of the animals have died off, which brings me to the owl, who's one of the first animals to die off, which is why you have that owl as a replicant. Here's the big one for me. Okay. Where we're getting into it. Yes. Fake family pictures. Yeah. So you know that Rachel, when she comes in, she's like, I know I'm real because I have these memories of when I was a kid. And he describes the memory to her. And she has this picture of her sitting on her mom's lap. Right. 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 But he's like, no, Terrell just put the memories of his niece into you. And that's why you have these memories. Yes. And the idea that you have memories is directly connected to whether you are real or or not real, right? Yeah. I mean, whenever Roy is talking to the little Chinese guy who makes the eyes, right? He's like, oh, if you could have only seen the things with the, your eyes, with my eyes that you made for me. That's it's a big deal because Roy, even though he's a replicant, still has these memories. And so it seems to be that the memories and the family pictures are related to that are directly correlated to are you real or are you not real? Right. And I so, think Roy even says, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Yeah. You have her fake family picture, but you also, just before that scene, you have Deckert sitting at the piano looking at old photographs. And if you're familiar with the movie at all, you have to go, okay, are these really his old photographs from his past? Or has he been programmed like all of the other replicants? Yes, that's true. Okay. Now, that brings me to Gaff and the origami. Okay. So what's the first origami that we see Gaff making? First one's a chicken. That's right. And when is he making it? When he's being a coward. Right. It's whenever Deckard is like, I don't want to go do this. I'm not, I am not a Blade Runner anymore. I don't do that stuff anymore. Uh, well, you're going to do this. Right. So he makes the chicken. So that's symbolism, very simple symbolism, number one. You are being a chicken. Right. Uh-huh. What's the second one? The second one is a matchman. Right. It's a little matchstick man uh-huh which literally is a human creating another human just like the subject of this movie and then finally and this is the big deal because we talked about the unicorn right 
right? Deckard has a dream about a unicorn. And really, that's the whole dream. Like, you just see the unicorn, like, round in the corner and that's running it. towards him, and that's it. Well, at the very end of the movie, just after Gaff says, Too bad she won't live. But then again, who does? Right. Perfect. Deckard goes back, finds Rachel. We don't know until he lifts up the blanket whether she's already been retired or not, right? right. But lifts it up. She's not retired. She's alive. But then he finds that origami sitting there, which means Gaff has been there, and he did not retire her. That's right. But then, what is the origami of? It's of a unicorn, which is Deckard's dream. Right. So how would Gaff know what Deckard was dreaming unless he was a replicant? Right. And that brings uh, that that brings us to that that main question. We talked before about how the replicants could be identified by the little red glint that's in their eyes, right? That's correct. And there's just the I mean, it's less than a second long. Whenever Deckard is talking to Rachel, and they both look the same direction at the same time, and you see a red glint in his eyes, yes. but it's it is so brief. It's out of focus. It's in the background. Yeah, but it's definitely there. Right. So you were talking to me about how where they got the you know the camera magic to make this work. Tell me about that. Okay. So I don't fully understand it. This is a special effect, like an old school special effect that Fritz Lang did in the movie Metropolis. Yeah. And so he used a light and he sort of shined it off a mirror at a 45 degree angle. And thus it lit the black part of their eyes and made it red. Right. Yeah. So the camera would be... Facing them at one spot. Yep. And they would put this mirror that reflected the red light 45 degrees from that spot. And it caused their eyes to, to glow red. Right. And every replicant, including the owl, has red eyes. Yeah. Uh, you know, it comes and goes, but you see it. And like you said, at one point in the movie, Deckard has red eyes. Yeah. Which definitely hints that he is a replicant. Right. Now then, when Harrison Ford was signed on to play the part of Decker, Ridley Scott was hoping to get somebody who would just come in and play a part and go home. Right. Well, Harrison Ford's very collaborative. So he wants to be involved in the whole creation and the storytelling. At the beginning, he's like, okay, now we are agreeing that Deckard is not a replicant, right? Really? At the very beginning. Okay. So Harrison Ford's like, I feel like it's super important so that the audience has a representative in the movie that's human. And so they need to be able to identify with Deckard as being a man. Okay. So then Ridley Scott sort of started to kind of change his mind, right? Mm -hmm. And in the middle of it, he wanted to make it sort of ambiguous. And so Harrison Ford's like, no, that's not true. He is not a replicant. And Hampton Fancher, the guy who wrote the screenplay, in his screenplay, Deckard wasn't a replicant. Right. And so when Harrison Ford went and saw the movie, he was mega pissed because Ridley Scott was doing stuff behind the scenes. You know, he agreed up front that, yeah, he's not going to be a replicant. And then he would do stuff like insert the red eyes. Right. And that made Harrison Ford super mad. Right. And I think it's I think it's also fascinating. Everybody who's a real human is not a really great person. Right. Like they're not they don't seem to value life and they're I mean, for lack of a better term, they're ugly. Like they're they have ugly souls and ugly faces, if you right, will. Right. And the only ones that are beautiful are the replicants are the replicants i mean you've got rachel you've got roy you've got i wouldn't say that leon leon is beautiful at all <laughs> right but his, that wasn't his that wasn't his making right, right he was right. supposed to be strong and he was definitely strong and you've got pris who's beautiful zora who's beautiful and then you're you've got him surrounded by these ugly people and it's kind of this idea of 
fallen angels, right? They're the ones who are concerned about their imminent demise, right? They want to have a longer life, which is what all of us want, right? We don't want to have that death looming over our heads. And so that's their objective. Find their creator and convince him to give them longer life. That's right. And so then, of course, when he says it can't do that, then they kill them. They kill They kill the God. I'm going right? to squeeze your head off. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to put my thumbs through your eyes. <laughs> but so that creates, as the fallen angels, that creates this idea that maybe they're demons, right? Maybe Roy Batty is a demon. And he's certainly going after Deckard, knowing he's about to die. Still going after him and breaking his hand and chasing him around and all of this other <sighs> stuff. Yeah. And then we have this moment where Roy has a nail pushed through his hand. Yes. Again, so biblical, right? Yeah. And I'm like, wait, is the bad guy supposed to be Jesus? That doesn't make any sense, right? Right. And then, of course, later on, they're up on the roof. Deckard is not going to make it. Deckard is falling to his death. And he gives this last defiant spit. Spit, right. right? And it's that moment that Roy Batty decides to save him instead of letting him die. But also the same moment that Roy Batty himself sees his end happen. Yeah. And he gives this amazing speech about his memories, right? It's all these things that are going to be disappearing like tears in the rain. Which by the way, that was a that was a Rudger Hauer improv line by the way. Yes. But it perfectly sums up the idea that's going on in this movie that he's been redeemed. He sacrificed himself to save someone else. And then at the moment that he dies, what happens? He lets go of this dove that he's been holding, which <laughs> flies up to heaven as if it is his soul. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. And that's a great way to wrap up that story. But I got one more thing I want to throw in, sort of the additional information of why Deckard may be a replicant. Okay? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So just a couple of things. Rachel asks him in the movie, well, how about you, Mr. Big Shot? Have you ever taken the Void Conf test? Right. He doesn't answer. Right. Okay. So again, ambiguous. One of the things that sort of added to the confusion of whether or not Deckard is a replicant or not. So we know that there are six replicants. Okay. But there are five rogue replicants. Okay. So you've got Rachel. She's not rogue. She's kind of in a category by herself. Well, she ran off from Terrell's house, right? Well, but she's not why Deckard is hired. Right. Deckard is hired to track down these five replicants, okay? Roy, Pris, mm -hmm. Leon, yeah. Zora. Yeah. Who's the fifth? So Bryant says in the movie that there are six replicants. Okay. Okay? And in the original theatrical cut, he said one of them got fried. One of them. I thought that there was two. Well, in the final cut, yeah. it's two. He changes it he to He changes two. it. Okay. That's so it. that leads to the confusion. Okay. Yep. Right? Okay. Yes. So when people in the original, who saw the original movie like or original. saw the director's cut, they're like, well, what, what do we, what? Who's number five? Who's number five? Right. So who can it be? Well, most people are like, it's got to be Deckard, right? <laughs> right. Well, Apparently, there was a character of Marv. Marv? Marv. Marv. What are you doing, Marv? <laughs> hey, Marv. Yeah. The wet bandit, Marv. But that character was written out. So that led to the confusion and the question of who is number five. Okay. And then, of course, Ridley Scott being as ambiguous as possible on whether or not it's it's Deckard or not. Okay. Have you seen Blade Runner 2049? I have not seen it. Okay. I want to, but I haven't seen it yet. Man, I saw it, but I don't remember it very well. And so I don't remember what kind of 
I don't know what resolution, yeah. but it's a different director, different writer, different everything, except yep. for Deckard and the idea, right? Right, right. So, what do you say? I say Deckard is not a replicant. Okay. Because I think it's important to the story at the very end that it's man versus machine, that it's creator versus creation, mm-hmm. for for that to be that poignant. Plus, Deckard, every replicant kicks his butt. <laughs> So, he doesn't appear to have any superhuman powers in any way. Okay. What do you think? I think he's a replicant. Okay. And I think it's a, he's a replicant because in this movie, the replicants are the real humans. Like, they're the ones that we should identify with. We don't really identify with any of the other humans. We identify with the replicants who don't want to die. Uh-huh. The, the replicants who have memories that are going to be lost. I mean, if the main character is a guy I should be identifying with, that means he needs to be a replicant too. Plus, he's one of the pretty people. Well, and the real question is, is Batty a good guy or a bad guy? I think that it's important. I think that it's important that you, that he is changed. We have to have a character arc. So he's bad at the beginning. Right. Or at least self-serving at the beginning, only to become sacrificial at the end. That's huge. That's very important to the story. I also think it's important to the story that the question of whether Deckard is a replicant or not isn't answered. I, do, I agree with that. That's the reason we're talking about That's it right exactly now. That's exactly right. So it is It is supposed to be ambiguous. I'm glad it's ambiguous. I like talking about the different possibilities. It's really cool. Yeah. I mean, there are people out there that nerd out to this question. <laughs> okay, are we done talking about the big issues with Blade Runner? There are literally, again, there are podcasts that the entire podcast, week after week, is about Blade Runner. So we can't give as much attention as this needs But, yeah, I think we're probably done at this point. Okay, let's go to The Thing. Okay, I got two big questions from The Thing. Okay. All right? My first biggish question to you is the beast, the thing, the alien. Was it the pilot of that spacecraft or was it a parasite that that alien craft got taken over by and crash landed on Earth? Wow, so I don't think there's any way that it was... I don't think it was a parasite. I think it was the alien. You think it was flying that spacecraft? 100%. Because we have the scene where they follow the hole that goes down out of where they've been keeping Blair captive the whole time. Yes. It goes underneath the snow, and they follow it back, and they find a spaceship that is being built by Blair, the alien. I mean, if it was just a parasite on the ship, he wouldn't be building another ship. Well, what if they take your brain and your memories or something like that? Well, they do. So you're saying that he's taken the memory of the aliens from the original ship. And but why? Why do we have that as a... Why is that a concern? Well, it's just interesting. Why did that UFO crash land on Earth? What happened? I don't know. It was before I was born. Nice. See, I think... About 20,000 years before. I think that that alien spacecraft was overtaken by this animal. Huh. And therefore caused it to crash, and therefore Earth is now contaminated. Okay. All right? Yeah. All right. I'd be interested to hear what people think. It's just a thought. Okay. Okay? Now then, the real question is, which one of the guys, or both, or neither, at the end of the movie, is the thing? Well, the question... Throughout the movie is which one of the guys That's is the true. thing, right? That's true, right? And so that it, I'm gonna, I promise, I won't go on as long about the thing as I did about Blade That's okay. Runner. That's okay. But I, there's just so many. So this, the, of these three movies, this is the horror movie, right? Yes. So can I talk about for just a second the elements 
that trigger our fear response. So number one, okay, climate. They're in the middle of the harshest weather in the world. Right. Right. I mean, this is the, the place where it's going to be more than 100 degrees below zero. I mean, it's just absurd how cold it can get. And that's something that we as humans fear. The other thing, isolation. Sure. They are stuck where they can't communicate with anybody, despite Windows' best efforts. Right. I mean, the nearest camp is still, what, they'd say, like two hours away or something like Plus that. they couldn't get beer all the way up there. <laughs> couldn't get beer. <laughs> that is an isolation that I truly fear. <laughs> and then you've got this claustrophobic element because with that outside weather, you're stuck inside these close quarters with all of these other guys, which then brings us to the paranoia. And that's the key element, the key fear element that goes on with this. So fear is confronting a threat, right? You've got a threat in front of you and you're afraid. That's fear, right? Right. You're going to get anxiety if you're anticipating that feared threat. But paranoia is where you believe that the threat is all around you, including people who you should trust as friends that might ultimately be bad guys conspiring against you and that paranoia is what fills this movie and what makes it great right that is special effects yeah i'm with you it's yeah unlike like say aliens where it's just a threat and fear yeah paranoia adds that added element because it's the unknown it, it's my brother might be the monster and then i love the, i love what they do on the very first change i mean the changes that we have we have different monsters each time that we see a creature change happen is a completely different looking thing but the very first time when the dog changes yes is so impactful so we've i just want to i want to list some stuff that you see as that first creature right yeah you see blood yep you see slime. Yes. You see dogs, vicious dogs, snakes, spiders, insects. All of these attributes are connected to this creature. Well, those are all the most commonly feared things that we have. Yeah. Blood, slime, vicious dogs, snakes, spiders, insects. I mean, the only thing they're missing is sharks. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So, again, they've, they've got... The storyline that captures our paranoia and fear, and they've got the special effects that tap into all of those primal fears that we have. When that one guy's head falls off the body <laughs> and the tongue like anchors it to a chair and he yeah. grows spider legs. And when I saw that for the first time, my eyeballs almost fell out of my head. Yes. Yeah. So our friend David Wright was asking about, before he saw Maverick, he was like, is there, you know, taking a kid, anything to be concerned about? I said, there's one F-bomb. Right. But it's earned, right? Like, it's a, it's an F-bomb that if I was in the situation, I probably would be saying the same thing. Right. Same is true for that scene. Right. You watch that thing crawl out the door, and you're going to say, you got to be effing kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So ultimately, we've got this paranoia the whole time, and still we managed to end with the same paranoia. We got Childs and we got McCready. Yeah. Which one is the alien? Are either of them? Are both of them? Could one be and the other one's not? Who is it? Okay. So here's the thing Carpenter has sort of gone back and forth on this. He's done the Ridley Scott game here. Right. Where, yes, they are, yes, one is, no, they're both not. They even shot a happy ending, right? They shot a happy ending where both McCready and Childs were rescued and everybody gets to go home. Well, instead, they chop that off and you're left wondering. The interesting thing to me, there's a, there's an eye theory in The Thing as well as Blade Runner, 
Okay. okay. And this goes back to when they're testing the blood, which is maybe the best scene in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. They draw everybody's blood and they're going to burn the blood because McCready theorizes that the thing is made up of everything and so it will react when it's burned. Right. And when he burns Palmer's blood in that Petri dish and that thing leaps out of the, the dish, huh? it scares the heck out of everybody in the audience and Kurt Russell jumps out of his skin and then everybody's tied to the couch with that guy <laughs> who right. starts shaking. They didn't foresee that as a problem. <laughs> Good timing! <laughs> right before that happens, they actually changed the positioning so that there would be no light, no, uh, what do they call it, the eye gleam. Right, no reflection of the no light reflection in his of eye. light in his eyes. Yeah, and if you look closely at it, it's not there, and that that is the indicator that it's the the thing. Okay, so the thing has no eye gleam. The thing has no eye gleam. Gotcha. Okay, but upon further review, that theory doesn't hold up. Okay, because like the dog, when it's changing, it has eye gleam. Okay. And other people, when they're changing, they have eye Right. But it's a really cool thing. And it, it definitely, when Palmer changes, they did that intentionally. Uh-huh. So at the end, Childs and McCready both have eye gleam. Okay? They do? Yeah. Okay. Okay. However, John Carpenter points out that Childs has no breath. This is true. I watched this one with Brock, and Brock is like, why can't you see his breath? Right. Like, he wasn't, it wasn't tuning in that you can't see his breath because it's he's the alien it was just it seems weird that i'm watching this guy huff and puff and there's steam coming out of his mouth right and there's no steam coming out of child's mouth yes here's the other theory yeah there is a the molotov cocktail theory have you heard this tell me okay so right before the end the final end thing mccready is using his jmb whiskey bottles to throw molotov cocktails all over the place right well at the end when it's just McCready, he's got a bottle of J&B whiskey. Mm-hmm. Childs comes and sits down, and it's theorized that maybe McCready is testing Childs and offers him a drink from the whiskey bottle that may be gasoline. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. And that the thing wouldn't react adversely to drinking gasoline. Uh-huh. And so... McCready would then know, and he kind of laughs knowingly after he drinks, right? He kind of smiles. and Right. So some people have speculated that he served him gasoline to drink, and he, the thing did and was fine. Right. Didn't react bad. Yeah. The only problem is when McCready's by himself and Childs is behind him and he doesn't know he's there, McCready is getting ready to take a drink, and then Childs walks in. Hmm. So that theory doesn't really hold up for me either. Well, unless he knew that he was done for anyway and he was looking for a quicker way out than freezing to death. Drinking gasoline? Sure. Okay. Well, I mean, <laughs> you have a gun? Yeah, and our buddy James Buckley did send us a picture, uh-huh. like a comic book picture. There is a child's thing monster that uh-huh. showed up in the comics. <laughs> and it was pretty cool. It was just this big, scary beast that was made of child's. Nice. Okay. Time for E.T.? Let's go to E.T. I've been waiting to talk about this one. I'm, I'm excited. You lead the way, my friend. All right. So before we get to the big, big question, yeah. I want to know what happened when E.T. died and resurrected. Let's back it up. Let's back it up. Because when they set up the transmitter, yeah. Elliot goes to sleep. When he wakes up, E.T.'s being you know chewed on by a raccoon, <laughs> which as a kid, I was like, get that raccoon away from E.T., right? Yeah, right. And he looks like... 
powdered donut. A powdered donut. <laughs> yeah. And he's not doing well, right? Uh-huh. He went from being fine, phoning home, to being lost in what's going on. Right? Worst hangover ever. <laughs> Right, and they can't find I mean, Elliot doesn't know where he is. I mean, he wanders off and raccoons are carrying him off. Okay. Right. So what happened? Why does he get sick? Why does he die? Right. What's going on? So is this a question that you're I'm asking, asking me? You, this yeah. is not rhetorical? Well, I mean, okay. what's going on? Well, he's an alien. He is a stranger in a strange land. Yes, he is. And so he can probably handle our air for a while, but he can't handle it indefinitely, right? Okay. So, I mean, the, the fact that he's not not able to live forever on our world doesn't bother me too much. Right. I think the the most interesting question is how does he come back to life and what all that really means. Right. We talked about the, the biblical similarities to the Christ story in this. Yes. And so what you have in this situation, you have E.T. who has become connected to humanity, but in order to save humanity must become disconnected with humanity, which is strong on the biblical Christ image of dying on the cross, right? Right. And then we don't get a how did Christ rise again other than he just did, right? Right. He just did. Right. And so for Edie to come back, the why is Who's Edie? (laughs) For Edie to come back, the why isn't the big question. It is just a part of his relationship and a part of what has to happen for him to be able to leave. Because just like Jesus is like, don't try to hold on to me. If I stayed here, you wouldn't have the counselor inside of you. I must go for you to have him, which is exactly the same as E.T. going, I'll be right here. (laughs) That's good. And you know, Steven Spielberg, who was born and raised as a Jewish person, Mm -hmm. He rejects that idea, of course. Of course. He said his mom would be very upset if it was a Christian allegory. (laughs) Right. But it is an interesting question. As soon as E.T. disconnects from Elliot, he then resurrects, which as a kid, I bawled my eyes out in that scene. Right. And actually, I was already, there are about five times as a grown man where E.T., I'm watching it and I have to choke back tears. Okay. When they're doing the defibrillator on E.T., And Gertie's there watching, and tears are flowing. The lump is prominent. I understand. You know what I mean? I understand. And then when Elliot notices the red light, and he's back, oh my gosh, E.T. phone home. And I'm like, ah, E.T.'s back. E.T. phone home. E.T. phone home. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just the lump is Mm -hmm. is there many times. Okay? But here's the real question. Okay. The real question is, is E.T. a Jedi? What? Now What? Is E.T. a Jedi? Okay, so you asked this at the end of our at the end of our last episode, and I you're just going to have to elaborate, my friend. Okay, I'm going to give you the case for yes, E.T. is a Jedi. Okay, all right, yeah. Okay, first of all, uses the Force through the entire movie fifteen thousand times. He certainly can make things float with the wave of his hand. He makes objects levitate. He has mind control over Elliot. There is something going, like Jedi mind trick. Hey, yeah, similar in their features. Okay, keep okay. going. Keep All right. going. In episode one, The Phantom Menace. Oh, no. Yes, no, I'm going not. there. Yes. No, no, no. I am going there. Oh, okay. In the Galactic Council meeting, if you weren't asleep during all the politics going on in Phantom Menace, mm-hmm. there or if you is... you blocked it out of your mind like the rest <laughs> of the world. Uh, our man Terrence Stamp is given a vote of no confidence, and the council goes crazy, and there is very clearly 
at least three Asogians. Now, that is E.T.'s race. I bet you didn't know that. I did not know that. Asogians in Star Wars The Phantom Menace. So clearly, the Asogian E.T. is in the Star Wars universe. We've established that with The Phantom Menace. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Now then, he also force heals Elliot's finger. True. Okay? Yeah. He wears a white Jedi robe, the blanket. Um, he was dressed up like a ghost. No, 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 no. No, that's my big one. That's the one I'm... Cu- that's my uppercut right here, okay? Okay. My my little jab here is the uh, is the little white blanket Jedi robe. Okay. All right? All right. Here's the uppercut. You ready for this? <laughs> yes. When E.T. is dressed as a ghost on Halloween, yeah. and they're dragging him around the, the neighborhood. Yes. And the kid dressed up as Yoda, yeah. who is actually, I think, Deborah Winger. No, Deborah Winger is dressed up as a zombie oh, okay. who's carrying a dog. Okay. She's just the voice. Okay. So somebody is dressed up as Yoda. Yep. And he walks right up to E.T. and E.T. recognizes him. Yeah. Going he's after like, him like he's my buddy. I freaking know this guy. Yeah. And he, he even says, home. Yeah. And you get the cool little musical cue from John Williams there. You get Yoda's theme. Yeah. E.T., back at his planet, he recognizes Yoda. Mm-hmm. Kabam! Thinking that's the Jedi, huh? Listen. I like the idea. Okay. The, but the fact that it relies on episode one, Phantom <laughs> Menace. You're not liking that, I too? I do not like that idea. Yeah. Okay. The case, here's the case against. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Where's his lightsaber? Right. No Jedi leaves without his lightsaber. Right. He's, he's a lowly worker picking up plants. He is not a Jedi master. No. Our buddy Jeff Mazuka. Yeah. He came at me pretty strong that can't we just let these two movies be separate and enjoy <laughs> them without trying to cross mingle them? Uh, no, this is what we do. And we're doing it. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Jeff. <laughs> That's right. So I'm going with, yes, absolutely. E.T. is a Jedi. Okay. What do you, what do you say? No, he is not a Jedi. <laughs> Why not? You can't just say no. Well, he could because he is not a, he does not have a lightsaber. He is not a member of some large organization that is empowered with protecting the universe. How do you know that? Because he wouldn't have gotten left behind. <laughs> okay. They wouldn't have left Yoda behind. They is... wouldn't have left Luke behind. They wouldn't have left Darth Vader behind. No way. Not a Jedi. All right. Sounds good. Okay. All right. Are we ready to move on to composers? Yeah. Let's talk composers real quick. And again, I'll try to fly passes as quickly as I can. Okay. All right. Ready. So again, the thing, our composer, Ennio Morricone, man, an icon, right? No, man. The guy who did all of the uh, Sergio Leone The good, the bad, and the ugly, the one that we know so well. Fistful of dollars, ecstasy of gold, an icon. Right? Right. So... And he does what? He's the composer for The Thing. The Thing. Now, what's interesting is this music isn't really like his style of music. It's really much more like the style of John Carpenter's music. Right. So John Carpenter is a musician. Like, he's still doing live stage performances and stuff. And he composed one of the most iconic musical pieces in film history from Halloween. Yeah, absolutely. And so I have to think that they, I mean, all of the, all directors talk to their composer about what their thoughts and ideas are for the, the music sound, but but there is a clear similarity to what Ennio Morricone's soundtrack sounds like and what John Carpenter's music sound like, right. sounds like. Sure. So say this real quick, okay? 2016, he won the Oscar for The Hateful Eight. Okay. When he gave his speech, I mean, he was... He just passed away not too long ago, like a couple years ago, and I think he was 91. He lived a long time. 
because in his 80s when he gets the Oscar, right? Yep. He gives special thanks to John Williams, who was also nominated that year for the music in Force Awakens. Really? Also in 2016, John Carpenter was performing Ennio Morricone's The Thing live on stage. Wow. Yep. By the way, The Thing score yeah. won a Razzie for worst score. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible that that, is, that that has happened. The main theme, I mean, we can't we can't go possibly go through all of them, but the main theme, if you just listen to it, you've got this pulsing heartbeat-like thing going on, and then you've got these dissonant chords that are overlapping with each other. Just, I mean, they just create anxiety just to listen to the music, which is exactly what you want if you've got a horror movie going on, right? So it's perfect. It's perfect music for this movie. Now, I could go on for days and days about Ennio Morricone, but I'm not going to. Okay. But I will say one fascinating tidbit I found out. Yeah. 1987, he co-wrote a song called It Couldn't Happen Here with the Pet Shop Boys, which was on their album, actually. Man, I get, we got to hear that. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, now to Blade Runner. Yes. We have... Our man Van Gillis. Yes. Who just passed away less than a month ago, like May 19th, I think. Yeah, not very long ago at all. Just a couple weeks ago. But here's a guy who's done some amazing film scores that you just don't ever hear about. He's really a very private guy. He just, I did get to see one interview where he, if I could sum up, he basically said, I don't operate the way that people want me to operate because I don't want what they want. I don't want fame. I don't want this other stuff. The only reason I really did the things that are big that I did, that I kind of operated in that system, was because it allowed me to do all of the other things that I wanted to do. Right. Which was creating music. Ennio Morricone, born in Rome. Vangelis was Greek. He was a member of a couple of rock bands, none of which were super important. But another interesting bit that I found, from 79 to 86, he was in a duo group with... Bon Jovi. Close. <laughs> a John that spells his name J-O-N. Oh, okay. But it's John Anderson of the group, yes. They are in a group called John and Vangelis. Really? Yeah. You want to hear a quick tie-in to yes? Yes. I'm going to throw this in real quick. Do that. All right, everybody, listen up. We are doing a exclusive Patreon episode. Every month now, we're going to pick one song from the 80s or 90s or whatever, and we're going to deep dive into that song. One of the things I found out about the guys from the Buggles, because we're getting ready to do Video Killed the Radio Star, two of those guys were in the band Yes. Very good. Nicely done. If you want to hear the rest of that episode, go to patreon.com slash Shirley Podcast. Okay. Um, so we know that Vangelis won the Oscar for Chariots of Fire, which also hit number one on the Hot 100. I mean, that's pretty impressive for a, a music score song. Let's talk about that for just a second, okay? Okay. Because people who weren't born early enough to remember how big the Chariots of Fire theme song was, mm-hmm. it was everywhere. Absolutely. And it I mean, it's in the movie Vacation when Chevy <laughs> Chase runs towards Wally World, right? Yep. It was huge. So he didn't read music. He, he was very what? musical from a young age, very musical, like 
was playing their piano when he was four, he would experiment with it and put nails and kitchen pans in there and play it to make different sounds, which is, I mean, you can tell from the way that he writes music. He's got a taste for a different sound than everybody else wants, right? Kind of like Nick Rhodes in, when we talked about our Rio episode, where he banged the chords of the piano. Yeah, yeah, exactly. When it was time for him to score Blade Runner, he got videotapes. And so he would watch the videotapes and... He wasn't writing down music. I mean, it's not John Williams writing down a sketch on notebook paper because he doesn't read or write music. He would just sit there on his keyboard, which was a Yamaha CS80. He used a whole bunch of stuff, but that was the primary one. That's the recognizable sound that you hear there. And he would just improvise based on what he was watching on those videos. Wow. That's incredible. That's a talent I don't have. Well, this soundtrack was called the best film score of all time by pitchfork in 2019 it is i mean there are multiple sources that say this is if not the best soundtrack it's the best synth soundtrack of all time here's the interesting thing about this soundtrack for blade runner okay yeah the release of the official soundtrack recording was delayed for over a decade yeah what and there have been three or four different soundtracks that have come out in the meantime and none of them had all of his music they would have things that were in the film that weren't on the soundtrack they would have things on the soundtrack that weren't in the film there's been a a huge mishmash of songs as far as Blade Runner soundtrack goes wow the one that I listened to has little sound clips from the movie in it like the little dialogue parts which I think is pretty innovative for the early 80s I don't remember any movie doing that that early on but queen did it in flash gordon right right which was 80 right yep same time that he's recording this stuff so yep yes pretty impressive when hans zimmer and ben wallfish did the score for blade runner 2049 they used a yamaha cs80 to capture that same feeling and they were largely inspired by vangelis's soundtrack awesome it's got components of those film noir sounds in parts but then obviously very futuristic very dystopian i saw teasingly mystical i thought that's pretty spot on okay yeah i'll go with that yeah so there you go there is there is the soundtrack for blade runner arguably one of the best soundtracks of all time wow Blow my skirt off about that one. Finally. Are we ready to talk about the goat here? Uh, who's the composer for E.T.? I don't think I remember his name. Mr. Johnny Williams. Oh, my gosh. Johnny. <laughs> so he won the Oscar for this score. Okay. He won it. He Well, well-deserved. Right. As you mentioned just a second ago, there's a song on the soundtrack called The Magic Halloween, and he puts a little sound cue from Yoda's theme from... The Empire Strikes Back. The Empire Strikes Back, which, of course, he also wrote that. Right. And then, of course, as you also mentioned, George Lucas brings it full circle by having the little E.T. neogens or whatever you call them. Asogians. Yes. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Has them in that horrible, horrible movie. Hey, don't forget that Johnny Williams was friends with the... Guys in Toto. Oh, that's right. The yeah, Toto his, guys used to hang out at his house all the time. And his son became their lead singer that's for a exactly while. That's exactly right. right. Yep. If you want some more in-depth John Williams info, go check out our Jaws versus Jurassic Park episode, as well as our Indiana Jones versus the Back to the Future, Future sound episodes. Okay. Last bit. He was having trouble timing the music right. to the chase sequence. Yes. And so Steven Spielberg was sitting there and he said, turn off the projector. Yeah. 
turns off the projector. He says, just do it the way you want to do it. Yeah. And so John Williams, that last bit, which is the best, it is 100% the best cinematic experience because of that music. He did it his own way, and then Spielberg went back and re-edited the chase scene to match what John Williams had composed. Okay, I'm not ready to spike the football on E.T. being the best John Williams composition. Good, because it's not. Well, it's in the conversation. It's, it is in the conversation. I told you it wasn't before and listed off about seven movies well, that's that the, I put that, above it. It's like talking about Michael Jordan's best game, right? Right. Because you're like, oh, well, the Jaws, I mean, come on, Jaws, right? Right. And then I'm like, well... I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark, man, he kills it. I mean, Indy has a theme, Marion has a theme, the Ark has a theme, the Nazis. And then you're like, well, crap, what about Star Wars? Right. What about Superman? What about Superman? What about Close Encounters? What, what about, about Jurassic Her- Park? What about Harry Potter? He's he's the best. Yes. He's the best. Yeah. E.T. is phenomenal. The music carries me emotionally through the movie. It's fantastic. If the music isn't in this movie, it's not good. It might be Mac and Me. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It, it might be some sort of schleppy nothing. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's incredible. Okay, that is all I have for the composers. Okay. We're talk, we've talked already about the reception. Right. Obviously, E.T. was the number one movie for weeks and weeks until it got bumped by Zapped. Right. And then it was like Officer and a Gentleman and then it was E.T. again for weeks and weeks. Curiously, The Empire Strikes Back reached the number one spot during a re-release in 1982. There you go. And then E.T. retook it and <laughs> ran with it. Somewhere. Right. So obviously, as far as box office is concerned, E.T. is the clear winner for best of these three Clear movies. winner. But, as we mentioned before, financial failures, Blade Runner and The Thing. Right. All right, D, it's almost time for final judgment. I've got one last item of discussion. Okay. We briefly mentioned it in our last episode. Okay. I feel like we should talk briefly about the E.T. Atari game. Okay. Did you play the E.T. Atari game? No, I did not. I played it. Okay. You did, okay. I played it. It was created by the same guy who made the Raiders of the Lost Ark game. Both these games were maddening to me. Mm-hmm. They were sort of those journey games where you had to go and collect items and try to do this and that and figure it out. And I just wanted to see the completion of the game for Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. And I could never do it. And it was freaking hard. Yeah. The stupid FBI agent would always grab me. <laughs> and I could never I could never do anything in the E.T. game. Yeah. And it was frustrating. And you know what? What? I wasn't the only one that found it really frustrating. No. In fact, Atari bet the company on this game. And lost. And it was a bust. Yeah. We talked in our previous episode about the fact that all the companies that you see in the Blade Runner Futureverse are actually companies that went out of business or had some real financial setback at the time. And Atari is definitely one of those. And it was because of E.T. There's a documentary out there on... I've watched it. The landfill where like uh, 250,000 or something ET cartridges were buried. Yeah, during the in the documentary, they actually go to the landfill. They uh-huh. figure out like, look at the catalog and figure out the date and then go to that spot and then they have to go eight feet down to find the... It's a good documentary. And yeah. making a cameo appearance is Ernest Klein, writer of Ready Player One. I think, is it? did he drive his DeLorean over there? I think he did, yeah. I think that's right. It's so, fantastic. Definitely something to check out. Yeah, All right. Good tidbit. Okay, guys, let's hear from our buddy James Buckley and hear what he has to say on these three movies. 
Hey, hey, Jason and Dee, this is James Buckley chiming in from the North Louisiana chapter of the Sure You Can't Be Serious Appreciation Society. I've been asked to chime in on the three movies you guys are looking at this week. And while I definitely have a favorite, there's no going wrong with any of these three films. Each one is a classic in its own right, and each one deserves all the praise it's received over the years. Starting with E.T., this is a perfect fairy tale, albeit a slightly dark fairy tale in some points. Extremely well acted by the kids, uh, lots of tense action scenes. The old botanist, as I believe the alien was called in some promotional material, was very well done, especially considering the level of special effects at the time. All in all, it's a perfect movie for kids and adults. I love it as a 12-year-old, and I love it now. Blade Runner is a slightly different story. I saw this when I was 12 with a buddy of mine, and confession, I was a little bit of a geek, so I had read Philip K. Dick's novel beforehand, and I was puzzled. Then I saw the movie, and I was still puzzled. There were some great action scenes, a topless scene, but don't tell my mother. But overall, the question about what it means to be human, yeah, this was not what I was looking for in a movie at the time. Subsequent versions of the movie really straightened a lot out for me and gave me a greater appreciation for the overall narrative. But from a visual sense, this movie was amazing. The cyberpunk, vaguely post-apocalyptic city in which Decker lived, Decker's cool gun, coat, and flying car, all of this was amazing to look at. Rutger Hauer was outstanding as Roy Batty. His improvised rooftop scene, was amazing piece of work and still stands the test of time. Now we get to John Carpenter's The Thing. I had read Alan Dean Foster's novelization of this movie prior to actually seeing the movie, so I was pretty pumped up and uh, I was not disappointed. It's an amazing science fiction horror movie. I had seen the original with James Arness as the blood-sucking vegetable man from space and it was okay. But this movie was mind-blowing. John Carpenter really created a palpable sense of isolation and paranoia, which was uh, really helped by score. Kurt Russell was amazing, as always, as was the rest of the crew, including the dog. And the special effects, man. Not to give anything away, but when the guy's back splits open and tries to eat somebody... Yeah, that was pretty shocking at the time. I think it's safe to say that this is my favorite of the three. It was such a well-made movie. I still enjoy watching it today. I always rank it as one of my favorite films, regardless of genre. So yeah, you can put me down in Team McGrady, but honestly, as I said earlier, all these films are great, and I love what you guys have brought out about them. So that's it for tonight. Keep on keeping on. You guys really have the greatest podcast out there. We'll talk to you later. All right, James, thanks a lot for weighing in there from northern Louisiana. We can hear the crickets as they are chirping. Appreciate you as always. Wake up. Time to die. Ready for final judgment? Let me have it, buddy. What do you think? All right. Am I first? You're first. Okay. Listen, we don't pick any losers, right? (laughs) Right. We pick nothing but winners, although we're going to make an exception in July. Right. I feel actual pressure Mm -hmm. on this one to, like, make sure that I cover all my bases and then I think through my judgment and stuff like that. So here's where I am. My heart says E.T. Okay. My head says Blade Runner. Okay. And my balls say The Thing. <laughs> Did you just say your balls? Yes. <laughs> this is PG-13. You can't say that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Keep going. They say balls in PG-13 all the time. I'm okay. Sure. All right. <laughs> so when I was a kid... So let's... Tr- Get in the DeLorean and go back to 1982. Yeah. I mentioned before that E.T. was one of the greatest cinematic experiences I've ever had in my entire life. Yeah. I laughed. I cried. I was moved. I was entranced. Better than cats. I'll see it again and again. <laughs> uh, I loved it. 
Absolutely loved it as a nine-year-old. So I was nine and 82. So basically I'm the same age as Elliot. Okay. When I finally saw Blade Runner, I guess I saw the director's cut in the early 90s. I didn't quite get it. But ever since that time, it's one of those movies you can't really shake. And every time I watch it, I like it a little bit more every time. I'm also a big believer that sort of modern movies, sometimes it can get cluttered with characters. Mm-hmm. I love the final mono mono scene with Harrison Ford and Roy Batty. There can be only one. And so I really love that part about Blade Runner. I also love the ambiguity and the questions and the discussions that go along with that. And the thing I was thrilled by. Mm-hmm. I was scared. I was paranoid about. It really was a heart thumper for me. So it all comes down to, I can't even say rewatchability because I don't rewatch E.T. very much. But when I do, it still moves me, okay? (laughs) So here's what I'm going to say. Of these three, and it's razor sharp, in the number three spot, I'm going to go The Thing. I love it. The poster, the plot is exciting. I love Kurt Russell. I love it. Number two, Blade Runner. It's very interesting. It makes me think. I love the futuristic stuff. I'm a big fan of Ridley Scott, but for me, number one has to be E.T. I'm an old school guy, John Williams, Steven Spielberg, and a little man from space. Come on. I get a lump in my throat just thinking about the movie E.T. Yeah. So that's how I'm going to go. Spike in the football, E.T., number one. Okay. Where, Where you at? All right. So when we started on this, I was pretty confident where I was going to end up, right? Mm -hmm. E.T., I loved when I was a kid. I was Gertie's age. I was Drew Barrymore's age, so a little bit younger. So I didn't quite get all of it, but there wasn't much that I didn't get. It was a pretty simple story. Yeah. The thing was something that I watched with my dad because he preferred the kind of scarier, tougher movies, and this one didn't have any nudity in it. You got some F-bombs, but you know, when we watched the TV versions, it was probably, those were edited out, right? Right. So I've got nostalgia with my dad associated with the thing. And so the last one for me was definitely going to be Blade Runner because I had seen it. I hadn't seen it. I didn't see it in the 80s. I don't even think I saw it in the 90s. I think it was 21st century before I ever sat down and watched the movie. I wasn't super impressed with it. I didn't know why it was such a big deal when I watched it the first time. And it literally was the one that I had to force myself to watch this last time. So when I watched E.T., I was impressed by the simplicity of the story, right? And I had to keep asking myself the question, like, why did this one win, right? Why did this one break all the records and the other two were cut and left to die, right? And only became cult classics later on after years and years go by. And then when I watched The Thing... I was like, okay, how much of this do I remember from being a little kid and how much of it did I really love? The thing was the reason I became a Fangora aficionado. Okay. Like that, I mean, the makeup effects like blew me away, and so I became obsessed Fangoria. with Fangoria. Yes, yeah. The, it, I became obsessed with movie makeup, special effects because of that movie. But when I watched it, there were parts in the plot that, I, as an adult, I went. This doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Like they're burning down the camp at the end of the movie, which is kind of an important feature, and it doesn't make any sense. Like, why is this going to solve the problem? It really just seems like a way for you to have a bunch of explosions (laughs) and everybody dead at the end, right? I mean, it just does. It kind of needs shelter. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't make, I mean, the idea is we're going to burn him out and then he can't 
you know, hide in the ice. Well, what if he walks 20 yards away where it's freezing cold? You guys are about to freeze to death right now in the middle of all of this stuff. It didn't make any sense. So I was troubled by that. And so I thought, okay, well, the thing is going to finish second to E.T. because E.T. is still amazing. And the thing that E.T. did, and this is really what I believe is the key here, is that it was the Pepsi-Cola of these three movies. When they had the Pepsi Challenge, everybody picked Pepsi. And why did they pick Pepsi? Because it's sweeter. Yeah. Right? Right. You take that first drink and you're like, oh. That's it. But here's the thing. If you have an extended test, you don't pick Pepsi. Right. You pick Coke. Because right. that sweet for that amount of time, it's not that great. So you, you've got it long enough for a year worth of great movies and some rewatches. But I don't go back and revisit it. And when I watched it with my daughter, I didn't get choked up. I thought, this is a pretty simple, straightforward movie. The thing that Spielberg hit the nail on the head with was the emotional vantage point of a child. And he lowered the camera. I mean, you got crotch shots at the beginning, right? He lowered the camera and he let the kids go chronologically through the story all to capture the emotions of a child. And so that's great if you're nine or if you were six. But as a 45-year-old, I'm like, okay, this is a pretty simple story. This effects aren't that great. You've got compelling music, which is really the reason that this movie is so great. But if you really analyze it, it's not super impressive. And so that left me with Blade Runner, which I didn't even like the I'm first time I saw it. I'm going to fall out of my chair if you say Blade Runner. I watched Blade Runner this time, and I was engrossed. <laughs> I was like, holy cow, how did I not realize how good the movie this was? And maybe it was because I didn't watch Final Cut the first time, and I watched Final Cut this time. And there are those various versions. So probably in the 80s, I would not be picking Blade Runner. I wouldn't want the voiceover. I wouldn't want the happy ending. But you give me the Final Cut, Ridley Scott's original idea, and you give me those iconic imagery that Sid Mead does. And you give me the little pieces of deeper meaning as far as historical fiction goes and religion and meaning and the question of life. And you put all that together in a detective story. Blade Runner overtook me. Whoa! I didn't even want to watch it again. And it overtook me and it overtook the thing and it overtook E.T. So Blade Runner is my number one pick. Cinematically incredible, visually incredible acted incredibly the guys you identify with are the bad guys and it's still great wow so it's for me number one blade runner number two et and number three the thing only because the thing had some plot problems with it okay that's fascinating because when yeah. like before i knew that you hadn't seen blade runner mm -hmm. i may have guessed that because you're kind of the thinker and i'm kind of a feeler and so that kind of makes sense for me to take et and you to take blade runner but you were like I didn't like it. Uh, not really. Uh, yeah. And for now, for it to emerge, number one, that, that makes me want to fall out of my chair. And that makes me feel great because I love it when we change opinions. Mm -hmm. And maybe we change yours. Maybe we change the people out there. Shirley fans, if you have not seen these movies in a while, go give them a second look. Especially the final cut of Blade Runner, which is on HBO Max right now, if you happen to have a subscription to that, it is well worth the rewatch. And speaking of rewatch, I will be watching it again soon before it's gone off of HBO because I want to just drink it all in. Wow. Fantastic. All right, D. So that's the capper 
three-parter ET Blade Runner the thing. What do we got coming next week? So next week we have a special unplanned episode. We talked briefly in Top Gun about the Top Gun soundtrack, but those episodes have been so popular for us that we have decided we are going to cover the Top Gun soundtrack in depth, track by track, and we're going to give you some bonus tracks from the Maverick soundtrack as well. Oh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, one of my favorite albums, 1986, hands down. I can't wait to dive into that. After that, we got Motley Crue versus Whitesnake. We're back to stripper music. <laughs> it's going to be great. Great stories to go along with both of those albums. I can't wait. Come back next week. Don't forget, Patreon. You now get additional Patreon episodes once a month. It's going to be awesome. One Hit Wonders of the 80s and beyond if you're a Patreon subscriber. If that's not within your budget, totally understand. If you could do something free for us, leave us a review. Hit the five stars. It just helps us out tremendously, and it doesn't cost you a dime. Plus, we love it. It's great. Yeah. It builds our ego, too. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, guys. Look forward to seeing you next week. See you next week.